From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's illegal and a party drug, but MDMA, also known as ecstasy and molly, is showing revolutionary promise as a way to treat PTSD. I can try to describe it, but it's almost like trying to describe to you like a new color that you haven't seen. We'll meet a veteran who says he found his former self, along with the therapist leading a clinical trial, and hear about how psychedelics could change the future of mental health treatment. Then, new images of distant galaxies. We'll get perspective about the historic mission that's offering a first look at the never-before-seen universe. It makes me feel part of this amazing cosmos out there. If we get to know it a little bit, we can feel very connected to it. I'm J.C. Futrell, and we donated our car to Colorado Public Radio. My family and I love CPR. That's where we get our news, our entertainment, and we love the local stories. It's been a dream of ours for years to be able to donate a car. We uh, totally recommend it for anyone else to do. It took just a few days between submitting online and having the tow guy come and take our vehicle away. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. MDMA, also known as ecstasy and molly, is gaining traction as a treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. Scott Ostrom is a veteran who lives in Denver. He took part in an international study on the effects of MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. Ostrom went to Boulder for the therapy. It's one of 15 research sites. Marcella Otalara is the principal investigator in Boulder and was one of Ostrom's therapists. Marcella, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. And Scott, welcome to you. Thank you. It's nice to meet you. Scott, I understand your diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder came out of your time in the military. You were deployed to Iraq twice. What were those symptoms? Well, it started when I got back from my last deployment in Iraq in 2006, um, mostly sleepless nights and uh, nightmares every night. Um, I was also hypervigilant and quick to anger. Are there certain experiences or one experience in particular that you remember while you were deployed? I think it was a combination of things that happened, but there was a set of a few days in a row where we had been in gunfights and we lost several Marines. And it was also just the the tempo of the operations that we had overseas. It was go, 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 which you need to do to be able to complete your mission. But the compounding of stress and seeing terrible things, um, yeah, it just started to wear down on me. And then when you came back, tell me about a moment, maybe a day you remember where your symptoms got particularly bad. Oh, man, I'm, I'm flipping through a Rolodex here of, <laughs> of things. Um, um, there was a specific time where I, I woke up in a hospital and I had no idea how I had gotten there. And um, I tried to leave and then had a confrontation with uh, some VA police officers. And what had happened to you? Um, I had overdosed on 
um, some prescription medication that was prescribed to me through the VA. And a friend of mine brought me to the VA hospital in Phoenix. And again, I had no idea how I'd gotten there. And um, when I woke up with no clothes on, I just wanted to leave. Um, I was scared. And that was a very low point for me. You tried therapy. How helpful was it? Well, regular psychotherapy is fine. Um, how helpful was it? Um, well, just based off of, you know, how bad things got, I would say it wasn't very helpful. Um, it made me aware of, you know, what was going on with me, but there was really no breakthroughs that happened with traditional psychotherapy. And you found out about the study. It's under the umbrella of what's known as MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. It's a research group that sponsored these trials. You went through an extensive vetting process, I understand. And there were three MDMA sessions lasting eight hours. Tell me about your first session. It was back in 2019. Mm -hmm. My first session, I believe, was at the end of February 2019. And um, I showed up to the office around 8.30 in the morning, and then the two clinicians asked if I would like to take the medicine, and I said yes. And in about 30 or 40 minutes, I started to feel the effects of the medicine, and the two clinicians suggested that I put eye shades and headphones on. And once I did that, it's almost like I started to go through this index of experiences and memories that contributed to that diagnosis of PTSD. Were they hallucinations? Um, I wouldn't use the term hallucinations. I would call them um, like lucid dreaming. And was there a moment where you felt that this might be helping me, there might be a breakthrough here, where your thoughts changed or you saw things differently? Yeah, absolutely. It, it was a combination of what the medicine was showing me on the inside because it's a very lucid experience. Um, once I was able to share that with the two clinicians, they were able to guide me to, to concrete those views and that experience into something that I would consider a breakthrough. And could you describe anything about that experience? Well, I mean, yeah, I can try to describe it, but it's almost like trying to describe to you like a new color that you haven't seen. Um, what I saw during the first session when I put the eye shades and headphones on was this spinning black oily ball at the edge of this lake. And at first, it gave me a lot of anxiety, and I, I would ask this spinning black ball, like, what are you? What are you doing here? And every time I asked it, it would retreat, and it kept doing that for an, a, a decent period of time. When I shared that with the two clinicians, um, they suggested that instead of asking it what it is, just sit with that feeling that it gives you and just sit with it and see if it'll open itself up to you. And being on the medicine, I thought that was a great idea. <laughs> and so I sat there with this thing and it opened up like an onion, like layers of an onion. And each layer was a memory or an experience that I'd had. And then it started to open up faster and faster and the layers were falling off like petals from a, 
a flower. And then at the very center of this was one particular memory that I believe really contributed to um, my diagnosis for PTSD. And I got to relive that memory from a third-person perspective. And then I got to share that with the two clinicians. And we turned that experience into the next two MDMA sessions that we had. And by the end of the third session, I was able to come to a resolution and um, it stuck with me. And that memory was about your dad. Is that right? That memory was about – it was about the first time that I was getting ready to step off on a combat mission. So I had called my father on a satellite phone and I confessed to him that I was scared. And he told me, don't worry. You're with the best trained guys there are. You're one of the best trained guys. Your training will take over. And he was right. It did. I had to become a different person to survive those combat deployments. I had to become um, this monster that I and the two clinicians, we came up with the name The Bully. I had to become the bully to survive those combat deployments overseas, which makes sense. Um, I can't be just Scott. Scott is sweet, kind, generous, funny. I had to become this other thing to do my job. And <clears throat> when I got home, I didn't know how to turn that off. I stayed that monster. And that monster got used to solving all my problems with violence and aggression. And, um, the two clinicians like Marcella and Derek, they helped facilitate a conversation between me and the bully and asked if it was okay if Scott took over. <laughs> and you were able to find more of Scott. Yeah, a lot more. Mm -hmm. As you said, you had therapists with you the whole time and Marcella was your main therapist. Marcella, you also run the Boulder site for the study. What's your mission? What's the mission of you and other therapists during these sessions? Well, I'm not sure if there's a mission. I think it is about supporting participants in finding who they are. And like I think Scott said it so beautifully of finding himself, finding this other part of him that uh, had kind of taken a back seat and being able to access and befriend and have a more intimate relationship with self. So I think that is one of the things that happens is a more intimate relationship with who the person is um, in addition to all the trauma that they have had and all the horrible experiences that they have had. There is this core self that... Um, we call the inner healer that Scott so beautifully described and was able to have access to, then um, learning how to have that perspective and look at life from that perspective. Why do you think the medicine is so beneficial for this healing? So, I mean, I think part of it was something that Scott said earlier, that it's not like hallucination. He said, it was, I was very lucid, right? That it's not about 
taking yourself out to this other place and experiencing some other kind of world. It's about going internal and experiencing yourself. And MDMA does help with that, with the release of oxytocin, which creates a lot of bonding and serotonin release, a sense of well-being and prolactin, a sense of relaxation. So part of what MDMA does is deactivates part of the amygdala that monitors fear. And so it's not that there's no fear, it's that the fear is more manageable. So it doesn't interfere with being able to access whatever the experience is in a moment. And you're in phase three trials, which means you're pretty far along into the process of trying to get approval from the FDA. What have been the overall results so far? So there's been two phase three trials and we finished the first one. And um, there's a paper that was written about that first trial. And we're still in the second one. And we're sort of at the end of the second one. So from the first phase three trial, which uh, we treated 90 participants, we were going to treat 100, but it was right when COVID started. So we ended at 90. And uh, this is over 15 sites. So over 15 sites, 67% of our participants no longer met criteria for a diagnosis of PTSD at the end of the trial. And 21% had clinically meaningful results. So they still had a diagnosis, but were doing a lot better. And 12% had no response. And this is with uh, the MDMA side of it. It's a double-blind placebo. So we do, half of our participants do get placebo. And then the people who do get placebo go on to do what we call a crossover study so that they can actually have MDMA, um, the whole study again, but with MDMA. So with the placebo group, we actually call it therapy only. So they're still getting the same therapy. They just don't have the help of the MDMA. And so in that group, we had uh, 32% no longer met criteria for a diagnosis of PTSD, which is about the standard of existing treatments that we have now. People are concerned that because MDMA is also known as a party drug, that it's addictive. Have you seen any problems with people getting dependent on the drug after these treatments? I have not. And have you seen anyone get worse with MDMA? I have not. Scott, have the benefits of your sessions persisted in the few years since you had the treatments? Yes. <laughs> what do you notice? I'm, like Marcella was saying, I'm, I'm more self-aware and more in touch with that part of me that was lost for so long. Um, they really redirected me towards who I am and who I was before my combat deployments. And Marcella, when do you think MDMA, which is illegal right now, will be legal to use? Well, we hope that um, by the end of this year, when we close the study, then we'll apply, and the maps will apply to the FDA for um, a new drug application so that We hope that MDMA-assisted therapy can become a medicine. We'll start the process then, and then hopefully next year um, that will happen. 
And Marcella psilocybin, also known as magic mushrooms, is also being studied for things like depression and anxiety. And there's a movement in Colorado to get voters to decriminalize mushrooms. How do you see psychedelics changing the landscape for treating mental illness in the next few years? Well, I think that it will bring awareness to how to do it, you know, that having it in a safe environment with clinicians who are trained to support that process for a participant is incredibly important for safety reasons. It doesn't mean that somebody can just take MDMA and that they can just get a prescription. It's that they can go to a clinic where there's clinicians who have been trained. Right. I should ask, there's a pretty extensive underground of therapists in Colorado and other states that are using MDMA and mushrooms already for treatment. How do you feel about the use of those at this point in the process? Well, we have gotten a lot of information from, uh, you know, MDMA was used in the 60s and 70s and 80s underground. And we have so much valuable anecdotal information that was good for this research in terms of like how to approach it. So, I mean, I think that how great it would be that it can be above ground. I want to ask both of you this because there's so much excitement around psychedelic therapy for mental illness. Do you worry, Scott, that the benefits are overhyped? Um, no, I think what's important here and why we're doing this, this media coverage on this is because it really stresses how important it is to combine psychedelics with therapy, like Marcella was just saying. Like you need both of those things to make – the magic that they make together. And, you know, people who are trained to do this, they know exactly what they're doing. You know, they're some sort of modern contemporary shaman. So, no, I don't think it's overhyped at all. And Marcella, do you worry at all that people have really high expectations for finding answers using this kind of therapy? Well, I do think that it's not easy work. It takes a lot of courage and bravery to do like what Scott did. And I think maybe sometimes people might think it's like a magic bullet or it's for everybody and it's not going to be for everybody. If you consider that 12% of people had no response, I mean, 12%, it's still 12%. And what is it about this treatment that sometimes maybe doesn't help and I hope that we can continue to explore that and to see who it who it works for and who it doesn't or how do we need to modify it for those who it didn't. So for the public to really know that it's not just this very easy thing that you just take the medicine and then all of a sudden you're better. And um, I think sometimes in the media, it might sound that way, that we have participants that come in having read some stories where they think that it might be an easier process than it actually is. Scott, how different do you think you are today because of your experience with MDMA therapy? Much different. I mean, I had a just as simple as having a beautiful drive over here and being able to spend a couple of weeks out in California with my friends and not drinking and just really enjoying life as it comes and not being, well, not being so angry all the time. <laughs> Scott, thank you. You're awesome. 
Marcella, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much. And thank you, Scott. It's great to hear you talk and your willingness to talk about your experience. Scott Ostrom is a veteran who lives in Denver. He took part in a study in Boulder on the effects of MDMA-assisted therapy for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. Marcella Utalara is the principal investigator and was one of Ostrom's therapists during the trial. There are other MDMA studies underway in the U.S. and abroad, including one at the Veterans Administration, which is studying MDMA to treat combat veterans with PTSD. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. ¿Quién somos nosotras? Who are we? I mean, now I feel like a Mexican-American man versus just feeling like a part-time Mexican and a part-time white wannabe guy. I'm May Ortega, and CPR's new podcast, ¿Quién Are We?, is all about being Latinx, Hispanic, Chicana, and the beautiful things that make us who we are. Look for Kian Are We everywhere you listen. A Colorado company wants to remove greenhouse gases one living brick at a time. CPR's climate and environment reporter Sam Brash has the story. So this is our production facility. Lauren Burnett is the CEO of Prometheus Materials. To understand the problem his company wants to solve, he says a good place to start is an ordinary concrete block. He picks one up his company bought from Home Depot. It's 8 by 8 by 16. It's a very common building material. In fact, if you look at the wall, that's what this building's made out of. It's hard to understate the ubiquity of concrete. Trillions of these blocks are made every year, not to mention all the concrete mixed for roads and bridges. The climate issue is the binder holding the stuff together, known as Portland cement. So they mine limestone, they bring it to an industrial kiln, and they heat it to about 1,450 degrees centigrade. That process releases lots of greenhouse gas, so much that cement accounts for more climate warming emissions than any single country in the world except the U.S. and China. About 8% of the Earth's CO2 emissions on an annual basis. Burnett picks up his company's alternative. It looks less like rough stone, more like someone glued together a whole bunch of sand. Burnett says that's pretty much what it is, but there's a twist. The company uses tiny microalgae to bind the block together. So it goes through a photosynthetic process, sequestering carbon. Making the brick still requires energy. At the moment, Burnett says its product is 90% less carbon intensive than traditional concrete, with some additional improvements in its manufacturing process. We'll be at, at zero net carbon very, very soon. And then we have a clear path to get to carbon negative. Those claims have caught the attention of investors. Prometheus Materials recently announced $8 million in funding from companies like Microsoft, which hopes the BRICS could help it build data centers and meet its corporate climate goals. What's less clear is if the company can crack into the larger concrete industry. We don't move as fast as kind of the technology and computer industry. This is Andrea Shocker, a civil engineer with the American Concrete Institute. She's leading a new initiative to help companies assess a wild number of ideas to make greener concrete. She says there's a good reason her industry is slow to adopt technology. The less we know about a new material, the more conservative we have to be. Because we certainly want to be um, driving on uh, safe bridges and have safe infrastructure. Cost is another concern. Builders use so much concrete, Shocker says even a slight price increase makes a big difference. The scientist behind the new technology says he understands those challenges. 
So everything that's happening at the Longmont facility really started here uh, in the laboratories at the University of Colorado Boulder. Will Strubar is an associate professor of material science at CU Boulder. His lab helped develop the process behind the bioblocks by working with the Department of Defense. He's now a tech advisor for the company. Yes, we can make something that meets the structural requirements, that is economical, um, and that can actually be transferred into the commercial space. The company may have shown that information to investors, but not to me or the public. Prometheus says it'll reveal full details on cost, strength, and durability as production ramps up. Meanwhile, Srubar hopes people don't sleep on the basic innovation here. Biology can help create new carbon-negative building materials. Nature's been doing it for millions of years, just using CO2 and seawater to do so. He holds up a beaker full of cloudy liquid. It contains microalgae building shells around their bodies, a lot like oysters or corals. Similar organisms are behind the new cement. If humanity could harness the process, Shubar says builders could become a way to combat climate change. And that momentum of building for providing shelter in densely urban environments for growing populations, we can use that momentum to actually heal the planet instead of causing more harm to it. He says the company itself is an experiment, a way to prove if that vision is just a bunch of hot air or a concrete way to deal with climate change. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Dancing galaxies and a dying double star. These are just some of the cosmic marvels spotted by the James Webb Space Telescope. NASA revealed its first images this week. And to help us understand them, we turn to Jennifer Hoffman. She's an astronomy professor at the University of Denver. Welcome back to Colorado Matters. Thanks, Andrea. It's great to be here. So we finally have the first images from the Webb Telescope. It's also known as JWST, and they come after decades of planning and $10 billion. Its optical system was built in Colorado by Ball Aerospace. How wowed are you by what you see? Well, just like everybody else, I am amazed by all of the, not just the beautiful images, but the thought of all of the hard work and planning and ingenuity that went into getting us here. And looking at those images really makes me feel uh, connected to the universe. Like we are part of this and we are uh, able to use our brains and use our uh, creativity to to learn more about our cosmic surroundings. That's that's an amazing thing. So talking about pictures is a little tough on the radio, but we're going to try. Right. These images are all over social media and front pages. The first one shows the vastness of deep space. Why point the telescope there and what did it find? So uh, partly this image is an homage to the Hubble deep field, which was pretty revolutionary when the Hubble Space Telescope first pointed at a part of the sky that was basically empty, um, known to not really have any interesting things to look at. But when Hubble observed it and, and took a very long exposure, it was revealed that, in fact, it was full of galaxies, basically, as far as the eye could see. So this is uh, uh, the successor to that image. Um, the one key difference is that JWST was pointed not at a quote-unquote empty field of the sky, but specifically pointed at this galaxy cluster that you see in the very center of the image, a bunch of bright white galaxies. Um, those are a, a, a known galaxy cluster, and they are extremely massive, so they're bending the light that comes from behind uh, and 
uh, creating all of these curvy orange streaks that you see surrounding the center of the image. That's the most striking thing about it for me, um, that you can see these distorted images of even farther away galaxies that are being that are being bent by that extreme gravity of the cluster in the middle. I just want to ask an elementary question here, but how would you define a galaxy? Ah, a galaxy is a, a gravitationally bound collection of stars. Um, and so everything that you see in this image is a galaxy, except the things that have pointy spikes on them. The pointy spikes are the stars. Those are mostly in our galaxy or in very nearby space. Um, but everything else, everything that looks like it has a shape to it uh, and doesn't have the little spikes, that's a galaxy. So you really get a sense for exactly how many there are in this super tiny sliver of the sky. So in that image, there are these streaks of light radiating in concentric circles. What exactly are they? Right, so the curved streaks are images of very far, even farther away galaxies that we otherwise wouldn't be able to see, but the light is being bent and distorted by the gravity of the cluster in the middle. So you, if you zoom in, you, I really recommend that everybody download one of the super high resolution images and spend some time just scrolling around in it. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. If you do that, you'll see uh, little tiny streaks all over the place. And some of them you can actually tell are galaxy images. They'll have like a little central bright spot. And some of them you can see the spiral arms, even though the image is kind of distorted and stretched in a weird way. So uh, we're seeing some of the most distant galaxies ever detected. How do scientists know what's farther and older? So uh, partly because of their colors. One thing that we uh, were heard in the in the NASA press conference two days ago was that this image contains very many uh, small and extremely red galaxies. So the redder something is in these in these pictures, the farther away it is. But uh, the better answer, and one thing that that points us to uh, what JWST will do for us, is that this telescope contains some instruments that will take the light from these galaxies and spread it out into what we call a spectrum. It's like putting a light through a prism to make a rainbow. Only you don't get a continuous rainbow, you get little spikes at different wavelengths that tell us what these galaxies are made of, and not only what they're made of, but also how, uh, how fast they're moving because that, uh, the, the, the movement shifts the signatures from where they would be on Earth. Uh, and so if you take a spectrum of a galaxy in this picture, and some of, the, some of the released images show you this, you can actually measure how far away it is, how fast it's moving, and what its composition is. And this is all because they're moving because the universe is expanding. Exactly. Okay. So JWST is an infrared telescope. It's detecting light that humans can't see. Are these actual images or are they translated somehow? Well, they have to be translated in order for us to understand them because our eyes are sensitive to only a very narrow range of wavelengths, which we call visible or optical wavelengths. And JWST is seeing beyond the limits of what a human eye can see. In fact, that's why we build telescopes. That's why we put them in space, to see things that we couldn't see from the ground. Uh, so there is some translation involved. Uh, these are actual photos. Uh, they are taken by a camera that has a filter in front of it to, to filter different wavelengths. It's just that the wavelengths are ones that we couldn't see with our eyes. So the image processing uh, is 
a way of translating those infrared colors into visible colors that we can see. But the scientists who do that work uh, are careful to preserve the relationship among different wavelengths and different colors so that the scientific value is preserved. So these are, these are true images in that way. They just are not colors that we'd be able to see. So the next image shows five galaxies spinning around each other in the constellation Pegasus. It's known as Stefan's Quintet. NASA says they're dancing, but what's actually going on? Yeah, so the when you say they're dancing or when NASA says they're dancing, that is a way of expressing the fact that these five galaxies, actually just four of them, the one of them, the left-hand one, is, is actually closer to us than the others, but the other four are gravitationally connected. That means they're orbiting around each other and they're 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 interacting. So they are um, they're in the process of merging, which will take billions of years. But you can see as they come close to one another, they are once again their shapes are distorted by the gravity. You can see these long streamy tails of dust and gas that are being pulled out of one galaxy toward another. And you can also see some very bright um, orange colored in this, in this composite image uh, regions where it's not a galaxy, it's just very hot gas. That is due to the shock waves that are being produced when these galaxies come close and their gravities interact. Hmm. In the top galaxy in this photo, there's a black hole, but right. you can't see a black hole. So how does the telescope show it? Right, that's a great question, and this is my favorite thing about this image. So if you zoom in on that top galaxy, you'll see a very bright center, and it actually has those little spikes that make it look like a star. So for the previous image, I said everything with spikes is a star. In this case, that's not actually true. The, the starry thing in the center of this galaxy is actually the signature of a black hole. It looks like a star because it's so small and so bright. So all of, this, all of this light coming from the center of that galaxy is actually coming from the material that's being pulled into the black hole and getting heated and radiating as that happens. But it's happening in a very small space. So it, it acts like a, a small point source of light. The hmm. other way you can see there's a black hole in this galaxy is that, the, the again, the orange colored light will show you these kind of uh, fountain effects, where there is gas that is being blown away from the disk of the galaxy, up and down away from it. And then you can see it sort of go up and out and then curve over and fall back down. So that material is being pushed by the tremendous energy of the black hole and being shot out into intergalactic space and then falling back down due to gravity. So those are also signatures that tell you there's an extremely massive and extremely active black hole in that galaxy. So uh, the next image is of a dying star 2,000 light years away. It's called the Southern Ring Nebula, and it looks a bit like an amoeba. This image <laughs> revealed a surprise. What was it? Yeah, I love this image because I study stellar evolution and stars that are ending their main sequence, their their normal lifetime, and and changing as a result of getting to the end of that lifetime. So the surprise in this image um, was that we can actually see two stars in the mid-infrared. Um, NASA released several different images, but if you look at the mid-infrared Miri, 
image, you can actually see there are two stars in the middle of that nebula um, instead of just one. And this was actually predicted. Uh, it was We suspected there were two, but it had never been imaged before. We needed to have an infrared telescope that could uh, see through the dust down there in the very center of that of that system and and show up the the white dwarf that's that's the star that caused the nebula in the first place. So that little left hand star that looks kind of redder than the other one is actually a white dwarf, and it is surrounded by dust, and that is the core of the star that created all of the other stuff in the picture, which used to be inside it. All that beautiful glowing gas used to be part of that star and now has been spread out into space. The image of the Carina Nebula looks like giant cliffs of dust towering into this bright blue starry sky. It looks like something in a fairy tale. But why is this nebula important? Yeah, isn't that gorgeous? I think the Carina is my favorite of all of these. It's hard to pick, but <laughs> but I, I love it. It's, it's really stunning. Um, this is important because this nebula is a region where stars are being formed for the first time. And in previous images of this nebula, we were not able to see any stars through all of that dust. So you can see all the orange and brown stuff in this picture is cosmic dust. Uh, that's very cool and dense, and that's where the stars are forming. But this is the first time we've really been able to sort of peer through those layers and see what's happening inside. Hmm. This kind of image is going to help us answer questions about how stars form in the first place, and even maybe more interestingly, how planets form around those stars. Because all of the dust and the and the signatures of the molecules that we see in the rest of the image um, is may end up forming planets around these new stars. So um, back to the dying star um, that's 2,000 light years away, the Southern Ring Nebula. Is this kind of binary star rare? Ah, no, binaries are actually very common in the universe. And uh, most, the majority of stars actually uh, have a companion. The sun is unusual in that case, uh, since as far as we know, we don't have a companion star. Um, in fact, I study binary stars, and it's really exciting to understand how the uh, the lives and, and deaths of these stars can be shaped by the fact that they have a companion. So in this case this of the Southern Ring, the complicated kind of asymmetrical structures that we see in that nebula are probably partly due to the fact that this star has a companion, that they're orbiting around each other, and that creates kind of a stirring up effect and um, causes the shape to be not round, but, but asymmetrical. And this binary star is dying. How can you tell that? Yeah, well, the star that was technically dying is the is the white dwarf, the, the smaller one, the yellower one. And we can tell that because, well, first of all, we have all this material surrounding it, right, that, that came from the star in the first place. Uh, so according to our theories about how stars change over their lives, uh, this kind of star will hit a point in its in its lifetime where it can't support itself anymore and it starts to lose its outer layers to its surroundings. Um, we can also tell by taking a spectrum of a star like this. So if you pointed a spectrograph at that white dwarf, it would not look like a normal star like the sun. It would have a very different spectral signature that would tell us there are different elements um, of, for example, carbon and oxygen uh, in that star, uh, which are different than it, uh, a, a normal star like the sun. 
The final image released this week is is not really a pretty picture. It's a chart. It shows elements in the atmosphere of a distant exoplanet. What is that and why is that important? Yeah, an exoplanet is a planet that is orbiting another star, not our sun. And this for me is very exciting because it's a field of astrophysics that ha- is is quite young. Uh, you know, <laughs> relatively speaking, of course, this is something that's kind of come into its own in my professional lifetime, in my professional memory. I, I remember when the very first exoplanets were being studied and there was a lot of speculation, like, are there planets around other stars? We just don't know. Or maybe if they exist, we might never be able to see them. But this field has grown and developed uh, over the last 20, 30 years to where we are now discovering hundreds of exoplanets all the time. And so they turn out to be very common. Um, and studying these systems can tell us about how our solar system got started. Um, it can tell us about how common planets are and how common maybe Earth-like planets are. It can help us think about uh, whether there is life elsewhere in the universe. And so this spectrum shows us signatures of water vapor in the atmosphere of a planet around another star. It's astounding that we are able to detect the composition of the atmosphere at this distance. Jennifer, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Jennifer Hoffman is a professor of physics and astronomy at the University of Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It was a really cold Colorado summer in 1988. Not so good for a new outdoor chamber music festival in Vail. In fact, it was so cold, the musicians built bonfires in barrels on stage, and the small audience gathered round to keep warm. Composer Bruce Adolph remembers the pitifully low attendance for the very first performance. Six people on stage and four people in the audience, and there was a ball game going on, so you couldn't hear anything. But still, word spread. 35 years later, it's one of the top classical music festivals in the world, going beyond just chamber music. At first, they called it Bravo, Colorado, instead of what we now know as Bravo Vale. And if you've ever wondered who thought of the exclamation point after Bravo, the founders say, well, it just seemed to make sense. A Colorado postcard from CPR with support from Dazzle Jazz in Denver. Colorado artist Daphna took to music at a young age. She started practicing classical piano when she was four. After graduating high school, Daphna began recording her own music in her parents' basement. And just a few years later, she has a new album out. I could see you or you see her Didn't know what I wanted But before I could choose That's The Man in My Dreams by Daphna, one of the artists featured as part of this month's Local 303 from Indy 1023. Alicia Sweeney curates that list, and she shared it with CPR's Nathan Heffel. Hi, Alicia. Hi, Nathan. Well, we're going to talk more about Daphna and a few other artists in a bit. But first, 
What's the theme for this month's Local 303? The Underground Music Showcase. Yes. A.K.A. the UMS, A.K.A. my favorite part of summertime. (laughs) This is an annual festival in Denver. It's along South Broadway that features a couple hundred bands over three days. And CPR's Indie 1023 is a partner with the festival. It runs July 29th through the 31st in all sorts of venues, clubs, bars, restaurants. And most of the acts are from Colorado. And so we're highlighting some of them this month, and that includes Daphna. Yeah, tell us more about her. Okay, she's only 21 years old, based in Boulder, where she just graduated from the University of Colorado with a degree in engineering. And musically, she has a pretty eclectic taste. Mm. She kind of reminds me of like Lord or Maggie Rogers. Let's hear a single that she released last year. Bit by bit, you made your way, made me remember there's nothing to say. You're in control now. You make me feel sweeter, like I'm no longer a That's the song Sweeter by Daphna. I'm loving the vibe, the, the upbeat feel kind of matched the seriousness of those lyrics, huh? Right. And with her new album, it's called When I Was With You. She plays a lot of the instruments on it, and she's generated a pretty significant following on Spotify and TikTok. I'm talking like millions and hundreds of thousands. Wow. And it's kind of bittersweet. She plans to move to Los Angeles to keep pursuing music out there. Oh, losing losing the Coloradan to, yeah. to L.A. All right. Well, you brought some more music, this time by a rock band from Windsor. Who is this? This is Holdfast. Their hometown is right between Fort Collins and Greeley. Shout out to my northern Coloradoans. <laughs> <laughs> and the cool thing about this band is that they're all related. This oh. includes brothers Tommy and Mikey Maddox and their cousin Charlie. And this song, this is the one that put them on the map a couple years ago. We're going to hear a little bit of time. Music from Hold Fast. The band has a new album called Movies and is playing the Underground Music Showcase in Denver later this month. Alicia, is this a group that's worth seeing live? Yes. <laughs> Hold Fast is actually known for having a really energetic live show. And right now they're on a tour that's gone through Utah, California, and Texas. And for the UMS, you know, this is the 22nd year of the festival. Right, yeah. And I've pretty much gone every year. I've watched it grow and grow. I've discovered musicians that uh, I love so much at this festival. And one of the things that I love is how it brings in bands from all over the state, including Holdfast from the Northern Front Range. Yeah. Now, this next artist she brought has lived in a few different places. In fact, he was born in another country. We're talking about the rapper Shama Noel. Where is he from and where is he based right now? He's originally from Haiti. He grew up in Orlando and now... As of a couple years ago, he calls Denver home, and he says he thinks the city is such a good fit for his music and his style, which is influenced a lot uh, by different kinds of hip-hop. So I want to share something with you now. This is Shaman Noel, the song Sugar Mom. I got a sugar mom. She buy me anything I want. She bring her friends along. We drink mimosas at the brunch. We 
all get along They planning our trips next month This a favorite song And I only played it for once I got a sugar mom She buy me anything I want She bring her friends along We drink mimosas at the brunch We all get along Alright This song, it's the first single off of his upcoming album It's called Two Can Play That Game And it'll be out next month All right, we got time for one more band. And this next genre is one that I feel people often associate with Colorado music, and that's this kind of folk and Americana mix. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. Great picking up on that. This is another Colorado transplant, Austin Carroll. He's originally from Texas, now based in Denver. And what I love about his vibe is that he and his band have this ease on stage. They play off one another. His band is called The Better Neighbors, and they also engage with the audience, which I think makes a home run of a performance, especially at a music festival like the UMS. All right, let's hear a bit of it. Well, thanks for coming tonight. I hope you had a good time. That's Drugs and Compliments by Austin Carroll. I feel like I'm on a bar on the Eastern Plains, a dusty old bar, right? Right. (laughs) Why did you pick this band to highlight? Okay, well, I've seen Austin perform that song live before, and it's one that really just gets the crowd going. It's this tongue-in-cheek sing-along, you know, and encouraging people, you know, are you going to buy my merch? What are we going to do? How are we hanging out tonight? A fun time band. And I mentioned his backing band, The Better Neighbors. This includes some musicians from other groups who have been a key part of Denver's indie music scene for years. And that's really what makes the UMS so meaningful as a festival. It's all about this collaborative and supportive community that comes out to celebrate local music every summer. And it's so cool you're going to be there once again as you've been for so many years. I know. Alicia Sweeney speaking with CPR's Nathan Heffel. Alicia is the local music director for Colorado Public Radio's Indy 1023. You can find her full list of local 303 acts for this month at cpr.org slash indie. The Underground Music Showcase takes place in Denver at the end of the month. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Woodfield, Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.